Culture Reimagined explores the potential of workplace cultures as powerful vehicles for making a better world. Be part of Next Level Conversations with Evangeline and Rebecca as we uncover new ways of putting people, purpose, planet and profit at the core of organisational culture and achieving a genuinely better future for everyone. In this episode, we explore the current state of our individual and societal well-being and how the benefits of an organisational culture, when done right, can extend far beyond organisational boundaries to make a measurable, tangible contribution to a healthier, happier society. Beck, the other day something really interesting landed in my inbox. It's the Australian Unity Wellbeing Index Survey, the collaboration between Deakin University and Australian Unity. Every year since 2001, there's been a sample of Australians looking at how satisfied they are with their life as a whole. The last one was conducted in June 22. It's a really interesting snapshot of the way that Australians are feeling about their lives and their life satisfaction. There are seven things that they measure in terms of well-being, the seven things that they're looking at. Personal safety, standard of living, personal relationships, health, purpose in life, future security, and community connectedness. So it's really a, a very strong spectrum there of individual through to collective uh, indicators. Yeah, that's a really interesting survey. It's a real holistic picture of how people are feeling in society. Did it have any indicators, Eva, on whether there's been improvements since when the survey started? Or, Well, that's the really disappointing thing, that at this point in time, Australians are feeling worse about their life in almost every single measure than they ever have in the past 21 years. Wow. Yeah, it's just there are some upward and downward spikes. The only thing that has consistently gone upwards is a sense of personal safety. It's still lower at the moment than it was at its peak, but everything else is either exactly where it was back when things started after a series of ups and downs or is the lowest it's ever been. You can see a real slide in the data. For example, the way Australians feel about their health, it's just been a downhill trajectory. The way that people feel about their purpose in life is a downhill trajectory. The way people feel about community connectedness is so much lower than it was 21 years ago. So yeah, it's just, it's quite a bleak picture, unfortunately. Well, I th- we can all draw some parallels right there. It's a sign of the times at the moment and, and how we are faced with some tremendous challenges in society at the moment and our feeling of agency or our feeling of control or influence these particular issues, right? So the fact that, for instance, community connectedness is down to me brings true to the findings that have been present about the epidemic of loneliness that people are feeling out in, mm. in our society. And I think too, the fact that the pandemic has hit and has, whilst given us a bit more control over our own personal circumstances or personal health and safety at times, 
it's also have been detrimental in some other areas, which is showing through, like mm. isolating people. That bleak outlook, unfortunately, rings true to other evidence and other research that I'm finding out there as well, because I've come across something interesting too. And this particular report is called the Climate Compass Report. And it is research that has been conducted by a not-for-profit called the Sunrise Project. And they have conducted this survey both in 2020 and again in 2022 to see how Australians feel about climate change, feel about their agency and being able to do something about it and what barriers and challenges there are in stopping people from contributing to positive impact or positive Mm. action. Now, that report was really interesting because it identified seven segments of personas out across Australia from completely agree that climate change is an issue that we're all facing, that humans have contributed to this being an issue and that really, really worried about it all the way through to the opposite end of that viewpoint and perspective. But what it showed is the amount of Australians who are concerned about this issue are more than half of who they surveyed. But when they surveyed people for importance on top issues that they are caring about right now, even though climate change is something that a lot of Australians are concerned about, it turned up as number four on their priority list. So it's showing that even though it's something people are worried about and even though that's something people are concerned and they want to take action for, there's other things that are taking up people's mental bandwidth that they can't actually get past at the moment in order to be able to contribute fully to this situation that our society is dealing with. Now, from this survey, the top three things that were before it were cost of living, healthcare, and the economy. So all really prevalent things that people are facing on a day-to-day basis. Those three issues that people are more concerned about than they are about climate change, I can see parallels between those and the measures of well-being and the downslide in people's perceptions of their well-being. So as the cost of living has risen, the standard of living has decreased or people's perception of their standard of living has decreased. Health, you know, there's obviously a one-to-one correlation between people's concern about healthcare and in the climate compass and people's concern around health in the measures of well-being. And then when we're talking about the economy, there's a parallel there between standard of living and cost of living. But I also think, you know, future security is a big thing there as well. People feeling nervous about their ability to participate in the economy, what that means for their long-term job security and employment prospects, their ability to provide for themselves in the future. All of those things are wrapped up in how people perceive their future security and its relationship with the economy. So it's interesting that the things that come before their concerns about climate change are things that are so wrapped up in how they feel about themselves and their ability to effectively participate in society and in the economy. So we've got this 
seven measures of, of well-being. We've got the climate compass, which shows us the real individual lens of how people are feeling at the moment. There's also been quite a lot of business-focused literature around climate and society, several of which I've noticed in the past couple of months in the Harvard Business Review. And they've been really focused on society, environment, corporate social responsibility and the like, and really talking about how there's so much business benefit for organisations to do those things. So what do you think, Beck? if we bring all of this together, what are these three sets of data telling us? I see it as a story. And this story is telling us that through the wellbeing index survey results, that people are feeling lower than they felt in the past. Now, the Climate Compass report is telling us that people are actually concerned about climate change. There is a large segment of Australians that are concerned and want to do something about it, but there are some barriers to people being able to take any personal or collective positive action towards this particular issue because of some of the broader issues in society that we're facing as a collective at the moment. But what we're also hearing with the HBR articles is that organisations are also a part of society. And whilst it makes good business sense, there's a responsibility and a duty for organisations to actually do more from a corporate social responsibility perspective to help our societies contribute to these issues that we're facing. I think you've outlaid that really nicely. So the way I'm going to sum that up, Beck, is people don't feel crash hot about things, yet they would do more to take action on climate change if they felt better about certain things or certain barriers were out of their way and that organisations have a responsibility as well as a business opportunity to do better things in society that will not just create better outcomes for society, but will make it easier for individuals to take the action that they need to take as well. Yes, Eva, it's a win-win. Which really brings me back to our, our whole reason for existence, which is the opportunity that organisational culture creates for organisations, no matter the size, purpose or industry, to make a positive contribution to society and to the environment just by having excellent organisational cultures. I mean, our entire premise has been if organisations create better environments that will enable their people to feel better, people will go out and do better things, right? They'll engage with the world better. And so I really think that these three pieces of research or, or these three sets of data are coming together to really help create a solid case for the power of organisational culture to really make that contribution. Yeah, I think the insight that we're bringing this data is definitely backing up, right, which is healthy organisational cultures permeate beyond the walls, the virtual or physical walls of these organisations out into mm. society. And so the better the organisations invest in a healthy organisational culture, the better the employees will feel, 
better positive contributions that can be made to society and the better as a collective we can overcome the issues that we're facing. I thought it would be really good for us to now run our five factors over the wellbeing index indicators to demonstrate how the five factors of a healthy culture would actually improve those wellbeing indicators. I think that sounds brilliant, Beck. Let's do it. A culture of accountability. I see that largely contributing to a few of those wellbeing indicators particularly from the perspective of people's personal relationships. So when there is a culture of accountability, people are holding themselves accountable and holding each other accountable to their actions, which then builds trust and integrity. People's personal relationships will be better off because they know if they ask something of someone, they will do it or if not, there will be consequences and how they're going to interact with each other. Less likely, I guess, of that being on the other end of incivility, like we've talked about in the past, if people are holding themselves accountable for their behaviours, it's going to contribute to that connectedness people are feeling within the organisation. Lastly, a culture of accountability would make a big contribution to people's idea of future security. So if organizations have this accountability to be a sustainable business, have longevity in their industry, people will see where their place is in the future. Will they have employment potentially because their organizations are investing in and taking accountability for what their organization does and how long it's going to be around for? and how it's contributing to a better future as well. A culture of congruency also makes a really strong contribution to people's sense of personal relationships within the workplace. If somebody walks the walk, talks the talk, the things that they say that they're going to do, they actually do, it builds that trust people have with each other. I also think that Congruency is something that makes a huge contribution to people's health. And, and I'm looking at this in a very particular way in the sense that in the past, you and I have often spoken about external perceptions of congruency, like when we see other people be congruent. But when we ourselves are congruent, we feel better in ourselves. But I know that you have experienced this, I have experienced this, I'm sure so many other people have experienced this as well, is when you are incongruent, when you say something and you do the opposite, particularly when those things are counter to your values, when you are incongruent with your values, that really causes a sense of stress. Doing that once or twice while it doesn't make you feel great and it's not necessarily great for the way that people perceive you and for your quality of relationships, it doesn't take as great a toll on your health. But when you are constantly in the position where you are being incongruent, the conflict that that causes within your perception of yourself, the feelings of stress that that manifests in people, and we all know that stress is a huge contributor to people's ill health, 
when people are incongruent, there is a direct link there between that and their sense of health. So when you have a culture of congruency, that's not just seeing other people be congruent, it's being congruent within yourself because the culture around you enables and empowers and expects that. That has a direct contribution to lowering the stress you feel in the workplace and therefore lessening any adverse impact on your health. And also that's related to people's safety. So when people are seeing other people around them behave incongruently, when people are constantly exposed to incongruencies, particularly when it's levelled at them, for example, a manager who says, oh, you can go away and do that yourself, that's fine, I, I don't need to know about that, you don't need to come to me for approval, and then you go off and you do that, And then the manager says, hold on, why wasn't I informed about this? Why didn't you come to me? Why did you go and do that off on your own? You've got there a really obvious example of incongruency. The manager said one thing and done another. As with all things, it's on a spectrum. If that happens once or twice, it's annoying, it's frustrating, but you know, so be it. When the manager is constantly incongruent, that really does have an impact on your mental and emotional safety at work because you're constantly worrying about what's going to happen if your manager changes their mind about something. Yeah, that's a really good point, Eva. I mean, it's very stressful when employees walk in the door and they're not sure which leader they're going to get today, depending on the mood or the previous meeting they just had or how they're feeling or something's changed their mind. It's very stressful. So, A culture of empowerment, I see the strongest contributions and improvement back to people's feeling of purpose in life. So really contributing to the empowerment people feel within themselves at work, the levels of autonomy and mastery they can have over their own role and the connection and impact of their work back to what the organisation is trying to achieve. With a culture of empowerment where people know what their role is, have the resources around them to do their role and do it effectively and efficiently, do it well, not only for company objectives but for customer experience, for their own employee experience, all of these contribute to people's feeling of meaningful work, which contributes to people feeling more satisfied in their purpose in life. The culture of empowerment would really, partly through what we were talking about before, contribute to an improvement in people's outlook on future security. So if people are empowered, they feel like they have more agency to do their job properly and to a high standard, then the meaningful work that they're contributing to, that contributes to an individual's outlook on future security. What is our future going to look like? What is society going to be like? Are we going to have a good environment, a good society for ourselves and our future generations? Yeah, I really like that point, Beck, about that external perception of organisations, if they have a culture of empowerment and they empower all the people within the organisation to do the best job possible, 
to make that contribution to the environment and to society. People's external perception of that organization gives them a sense of confidence. Oh, we've got a great, bright future because all these organizations are doing really wonderful things and making really wonderful contributions. I think that's such a good point. I also think that empowerment at an individual level, a culture of empowerment really gives people that sense of future security for themselves as well in terms of their career trajectory. If they're getting opportunities for growth, they can see possibilities for themselves in the future, whether it's within the organization that they're in or another one, at least that that sense of being able to grow and develop at work through being empowered, that gives people a sense that, okay, great, I can retain my employability. I can see opportunities for myself. I feel empowered that I can go after different things. And so that sense of concern around how am I going to participate in the economy? How am I going to be employed? How am I going to put a roof over my head? All those kinds of things, those kinds of worries are diminished when people are empowered at work because they can feel more in control of themselves and their future and they can see a clearer pathway for themselves and their career. Empowerment contributes at both an individual and a collective level to people's sense of future security. Yeah, really good point, Eva, when that culture of empowerment really helps people look at the skills that they're building and their future employability is within their control. I think you're right. People have a much higher sense of self-esteem and self-confidence and future security outlook. Yeah. I know I talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs quite often. And that sits in the sort of middle to upper bands of of the the hierarchy of needs. <laughs> Definitely. So we've spoken about accountability, we've spoken about congruency, we've spoken about empowerment. Let's talk about safety. So there's an obvious correlation here that I'll just get out of the way quickly, which is around a culture of safety within an organization would have a direct contribution to personal safety. So when people are feeling safe at work, they are feeling physically safe, they are feeling mentally safe, they are feeling emotionally safe. I don't think you could create an argument where it's okay for people to feel unsafe at work and yet they still feel safe all the time, like outside of that. So if you're feeling unsafe at work, whether it's physically, mentally, or emotionally, that is going to carry into your sense of personal safety and well-being outside of the workplace. There's an obvious correlation. A culture of safety also makes a strong contribution to people's health. Again, same thing. If you're physically safe at work, you are more likely to be physically healthy right? You're less likely to suffer an injury or anything that adversely impacts your health. Mental and emotional safety, again, strongly corresponds to your feelings of negative stress. And as we spoke about earlier in regards to congruency, if you're constantly exposed to negative stress, your health will go down. So if you are in a workplace that values, expects, demands, empowers a culture of safety, then you are more likely to experience a higher degree of health. Notwithstanding any other things that obviously might happen as accidents or, you know, things that the workplace can't control, 
but in regards to workplace misdemeanors and a sense of stress, it's an obvious contributor. So a culture of transparency at work where people have the information shared freely that they need to do their job on a daily basis, where they have the transparency of how decisions are made that impact or affect their work or their well-being. This all contributes to an improvement in people's health. They see why things are the way they are, why particular decisions or actions have progressed. People then don't feel as threatened when there's that void of information and they're unsure why things have happened and they're unsure of the logic or they're unsure of whether or not they're going to have a trouble getting the information they need to do their job. And all of this, again, adds to the negative stress, which then contributes to ill health, right? This culture of transparency really improves people's personal feeling of security at work and what's happening, which contributes to better health overall. Transparency really improves people's sense of future security. Having transparency of information, having transparency of decision-making really provides people with the information they need, not only at work to do their job and understand what's happening around them, but I think it really helps them go home at night with information to help them plan their future better, plan their personal commitments, financial commitments around what's happening, what they're doing at work, what their career might look like. And it all contributes back into their own future planning for saving for a house, moving location, all these sorts of things by having the information available at work helps people plan their own personal lives better and the futures that they will create. They're all really good points, Beck. When we think about transparency in relation to future security at a collective level, so when we don't work within an organisation, we're merely a member of society that exists in the same world and that organisation is not transparent, it can have a significant impact on our sense of security for the future. So a really good example would be around, say, oil spills. If there's an organisation that deals in transporting oil, digging up oil, whatever, we know that oil spills are hugely catastrophic for the environment. And if you live in a coastal town or a coastal city, and there is an oil spill and there is not transparency around that oil spill. And all of a sudden, there are all those negative um, environmental effects that occur. The wildlife that are oil slicked, you have the oil slicked beaches, you have the impacts on fishing, which is obviously like in many coastal towns is a significant industry, as is tourism, most likely. And no one wants to go and hang out on an oil-slicked beach. So your sense of security for the future in terms of my livelihood is now dashed because this oil spill happened, no one told us about it, no one is taking accountability for it, no one's giving us the information that we need to be able to clean this up, to move our fishing grounds, to know when we'll be able to have tourists back, all of those kinds of things. So a culture of transparency means that People who don't even work within your organization, but who can be affected by your organization also have access 
to information that is pertinent to their sense of security in the future. In their future planning, yep. Yeah. So, Beck, there's one element of, well, there's one of measure of the, the seven measures of well-being that we haven't touched on directly, and that is the standard of living. Why do you think that might be? I think that's because the standard of living indicator is unique in that if everything else on the well-being survey started to rise, it would have a direct impact on standard of living. Collectively, if organisations are focusing on having healthy organisational cultures that are based on our five factors of a healthy culture and really laying the foundations for organisations to move into those people, planet and purpose alongside profit approaches that have stronger positive impacts on our society and environment, then overall our standard of living is going to raise and all of those contributions are going to be factored into that rise in standard of living. I think that is a very fair assessment. I'm taking a quick squeeze at the little graph that comes with the report where it shows the rise and fall of each of these measures over the last 21 years. And I can see here that there is not one point where the dip in standard of living does not correspond with a dip in every other measure. And at other points in time, for example, personal safety rises while other things fall. There are points where future security has risen and other things have fallen or haven't risen as much. But that standard of living measure, its ups and its downs correspond with every other measure going down. So I agree. It's a collective indicator. Like you said, it's indirect. It's an amalgam of all the other measures. I think if you were going to look at what kind of culture would embed an improvement in standard of living, what factor particularly would contribute to that? I think it would be having a strong culture of accountability. Beck, it's funny that you say that because we know that even though I love all our five-factor children equally, <laughs> I do have a special place in my heart for, for accountability, accountability and I, I do go on about it quite often. And I agree with you that if you were to find one of those five factors to focus on the most, to have a, a greater collective impact to help improve that standard of living measure, accountability would definitely have not the only contribution, but on its own, it would have the best contribution. And the best starting point. Yep. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Very observant listeners to our podcast will notice that each of our episode titles has a particular type of name. This episode has a title of a healthy culture, and we're looking at how we use organizational culture to improve people's individual and collective well-being. We've had flexible cultures, which has taken a look at how organizations can embed healthy cultures that transcend location and really strengthen the way people can work. We've had leadership cultures, 
which looked at how culture should be a core competency of leaders. Then we had impactful cultures, which helped highlight how organizations can do more to contribute positive impacts beyond their own organization into society and the environment. Our episode of Connected Cultures was looking at how organizations can use culture to attract and retain talent. And our most recent episode of Collaborative Cultures really shows how organizations can use healthy culture at scale to have genuine collaboration across the organization for better outcomes. But there is a method behind our madness. It's not some random kind of way of naming things. It's simply a way of looking at a topic. Yeah, because culture is really multifaceted and you can look at it through many different lenses and viewpoints. That's right. So we've merely been looking at topics that are pertinent right now. The need to attract and retain talent in our current economic environment is really important. And so that's why we looked at that topic, but we looked at it through a specific lens. However, you could also look at attracting and retaining talent through the lens of leadership and how leadership can create cultures that foster a better approach to attracting and retaining talent. Or you could look at it through the lens of healthy culture. Or you could look at attracting and retaining talent through the lens of collaboration. Yeah, and our Flexible Cultures episode that looked at how healthy culture that transcends location really supports employee flexibility. But you could look at that through different lenses, like the Impactful Cultures lens, which could take a look at positive impacts your organization has on society and environment through a culture that transcends location and not requiring necessarily physical locations for people to be based at, but having that hybrid way of working. Or you could look at it through a connected lens. So how to keep all of our staff connected through a culture that transcends location. They're really good examples, Beck. So it's really important that people understand that while there are the the five factors of a healthy culture, there are also these different lenses through which to look at culture and examine things in different ways. So while the five factors are a consistent set of, of things that underpin a healthy culture, the way that you look at your culture, you can take these different perspectives to help you fine-tune things or identify which kind of things you want to address first. So, for example, is it more important to create a culture that is really focused on leadership? Is it more important to create a culture that is really focused on collaboration or connectedness? And it's having those different lenses and ways of of looking at how you want to address your culture that don't just help you in the here and now. That's right, Eva. These lenses really help as a tool for future forecasting to look towards future trends and really apply that focus to their organizational culture improvements. It's this combination of lenses plus the five factors that really give you a detailed look on how to apply 
the most important organizational culture improvements that you want to make next? Yeah, having that way to really target your efforts in an informed way, knowing that it's going to have the greatest impact, the greatest bang for buck, because we've all been involved in organizational culture change efforts that have gone well, but many, many more of us, I think, have been involved in organizational change efforts that have not gone so well, where things have fallen over at the first hurdle or great things have been done and then it's kind of petered out or something was done and it was just so bad that it turned everybody off it forever and nobody wants to go near it again. And all of these things really create this backlog of evidence as to why people don't want to tackle culture, why people are suspicious of culture change efforts, or they're skeptical of organizational culture change. And all of these things, when it happens, it just makes it harder and harder for leaders to really instill the change that needs to be done to enable their organizations to become those people, planet, purpose alongside profit organizations that we need in this world. So we really want people to be able to understand where their culture change efforts are best placed to to get them on that path to creating those genuinely healthy cultures. And it's through that combination of lens and five factors that enables leaders to pick the thing that is most important for them, that they will get the biggest bang for buck and that they can invest in in confidence, knowing that they're going to get a better result than they would have if they just went down some kind of random path or picked through the loudest noise in the culture survey or the anonymous feedback box, you know, all these ways that people typically tend to identify where they should be putting their culture change efforts. So this is actually wrapping up season one of our podcast, Eva, isn't it? It's gone so fast. Beck, that is season one coming to a wrap. It's all coming to a glorious end. I hope our listeners have got a lot from our conversations and our insights, but we have some pretty exciting things up our sleeve for season two, don't we, Eva? Yeah, well, I definitely think they're exciting and interesting. Absolutely. So while this this season's really been us laying the groundwork, putting the ideas out there, demonstrating the factors and their usefulness and their applicability, looking at things through those lenses, building up the evidence as to why this approach is so important and why organizational culture is such a powerful and underused vehicle for the kind of change that we need. But we can't keep doing doing these kinds of episodes forever because I think, you know, they will get mm, maybe a little less interesting to listen to and quite possibly a little less interesting to record. So in season two, we're going to have some different formats and approaches like interviews. Yeah, we're, we're going to take a little bit of a break after this episode to really plan out some interesting content some interesting people for interviews and try out some some different formats for our podcast as well. Yeah, it'll be great to have some people on and have some really great interviews. 
it's that experimentation with format types that I'm really looking forward to. Just as a little hint to people, when we say culture reimagined as the title of the podcast, we are definitely going to be getting into some reimagining in the next season. Thank you for listening. And we hope you join us again on this journey of reimagining culture and come along with us on season two. Culture is a powerful way forward to achieving a better world for everyone. Thanks for being on this journey with us. To keep the conversation about healthy culture at the front of mind and become a successful advocate in your organisation, subscribe to this podcast and follow it on LinkedIn. We'd love for you to get involved in the podcast as well. So if you have ideas for episodes you'd like us to explore or stories about your experience with culture that you'd like to share with us, please get in touch. You can find all the social and contact links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and doing your part in reimagining cultures for a better future.